Let all now be silent and give heed to your liege. Thor has captured Malekith the Accursed, sent on a nefarious errand by his master. He has loosed a terrible winter upon Midgard. Hugin, the Raven of Odin, has been slain, and Munin has returned with secrets that have never seen the light of day. Baldur has witnessed a foreboding vision granted him by the Norns. And by my command, the Warriors Three have begun the hosting of Asgard in all her strength on the battle plain of Vigrid. Yet all these things are but the shadows cast by one great shadow. And that one is a shadow of flame. I myself witnessed that flame in the days of the beginning. Long have I hoped that the story ended in those days, but I see now that like many stories, perhaps it has no end. I am Miles Stokes. And I'm Elizabeth Alley. And this is The Lightning and the Storm. Behold! Episode 4 of our 13-part love letter to Walter Simonson's epic 1980s run of The Mighty Thor. And behold, when stuff starts to get really real, everything that has built up in the last three episodes of our show in the first year of Simonson's run, this is where it all starts coming to a head, and I am super excited to talk about all of that. This is the big show, and I have to say, after the long... Uh, uh, steady, carefully plotted buildup. This feels so earned and so rad. It does. But before we dive into all of that, Elizabeth, how's it going? Good. How about yourself? I'm doing pretty well. Just had some of my very favorite people visit here from Florida in a rare moment of not rain in Portland. That was very nice. Excellent. I have been busy with preparation for a Geekcraft Expo, PDX, and other nerdy things. And of course, reading some amazing Thor comics. Oh, there's so much good stuff. And actually, in current Thor, it's the uh, it's the end of the Thor versus the gods of the Shi'ar arc, like Shara and Kithri, that always used to be invoked back in X-Men. They're in it. And it's super epic, and the Phoenix Force is showing up. And it's I always like when my, my two great comics loves collide like that. I have got to catch up on this stuff. We'll make it happen. It's all good. <laughs> uh, but yeah, so here we are. This episode is going to be a little bit unusual in that we're going to be covering only three issues, and not only that, we're only going to be covering half of a storyline. And we were thinking about how to handle this because the the Surt War, as it is called, S-U-R-T War, I don't know why it's called that, but it totally is, it basically is four issues, which is our usual coverage, but it also has an intro issue and sort of a denouement issue. And we didn't want to do either a super long episode or we didn't want to rush it. So we're going to divide that up. We think we have a good cliffhanger stopping point. Uh, let us know what you think about how we handled this. Yeah, I think each of the three issues of this arc end on amazing beats, uh, but especially the cliffhangers. So, hey, as a side benefit, you will not be able to wait until episode five. Yes, we're going to give you a little bit of the experience of having to wait for the next issue of Thor month to month back in the 80s with our weekly podcast. <laughs> Before we dive in, we wanted to share some interesting tidbits we got from a commenter, Damien, on our site who shared that Debbie Harry was artist reference for Walter Simonson for Lorelei and that actually Sigourney Weaver was reference for Sif. And so, yeah, you were totally right. Sif not only coincidentally looks like Sigourney Weaver, but that was quite direct. Yeah, that wasn't a surprise, but I actually, on, on our social media, put together a picture of Debbie Harry and Lorelai side by side, and I would never have realized it before Damien pointed it out, but it's so perfect. And I just have to say that as far as using a celebrity as artist reference, which of course happens all the time in comics these days, it is so well done. Like in, in some comics, you know, it looks like the artist has kind of photoshopped in like the latest Us magazine like picture, but this is is seamless and and it makes me totally understand why Thor was attracted to Lorelai. I would have no power to withstand Debbie Harry. Seriously, who would? And this actually reminds me, okay, so this is a little off topic, but but so be it. Um, yeah, we were talking in the car about one of my favorite video game series, uh, Silent Hill, and how in Silent Hill Downpour, the most recent and probably final at this point entry, uh, the main character was based on a soap opera actor. And like, you know a bunch about soap opera, so you were telling me all about this character's history. What was the guy's name again? The actor Roger Howarth, whose soap opera or one-line 
life to live uh, fans will know played the dastardly Todd Manning, who had a very controversial storyline in the 90s that I won't really get into here. You can always Google it. And uh, basically there to play this ultimate villain who was beloved so much that in, you know, true soap opera fashion, they redeemed him to a degree. And he was a very complex and fascinating character for the rest of the run of One Life to Live. Although, of course, he was replaced by a different actor who turned out to be his um, plastic surgery uh, changed uh, long lost twin brother. And yeah, it got it got super soapy. I thought X-Men was complicated. Oh, man. <laughs> I think that's why there is actually really if you talk to artists and creators, there's a strong soap opera comic uh, kind of coalition. And because they share so much in common, people back from the dead, you know, convoluted storylines, uh, you know, vixens. It's 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 it, it makes sense. <laughs> I totally buy that. Professional wrestling, too, as I understand it, although I know very little about it. <laughs> but anyway, we digress a lot immediately, which is something that happens. But we have some Thor to tell you about. And if you want to hear about more Thor, um, I know we have some people who have just picked up the uh, the show with the show, like once it launched, as opposed to following it before we started. So if you're unaware, we actually have sort of a special Zero episode covering a couple of the fill-in comics that happened during Simonson's run. Not written by Simonson, but, you know, within the sequential numbering during his run. And um, if you want to donate to our Indiegogo campaign, five bucks will get you access to that episode. So if you... Uh, uh, want to hear all about Thor fighting Hercules and also like Loki riding a train with a bunch of cowboy trolls, then uh, you can you can do that. But for now, we have the beginning of a truly epic arc. And I know we use that word epic a lot, but here it's very much warranted of the mighty Thor. So the casket of ancient winners has been shattered and winter has been in, unleashed on Midgard. Yeah, the Casket of Ancient Winters, of course, was the artifact that first Eric Willis and then Roger Willis, his elderly, well, middle-aged uh, son, were sworn to protect. And now that Malekith the Accursed, the dark elf servant of the great cosmic figure we've seen in every episode, has managed to shatter it, everything's going in a very bad direction. We're not talking, like, a little bit of snow and, oh, it's chilly, maybe I should wear a jacket. We're talking, like, epic snowstorms across the globe, including in places that would really not expect that this time of year. Yeah, this is like Laura Ingalls Wilder, long winter blizzard. It's bad times. And Thor, Lorelai, Roger Willis, and the unconscious Malekith the Accursed, they're escaping the English countryside where the whole Dark Elf storyline from last episode took place in the nick of time just dodging the giant blast of icy doom coming out of the fairy caverns. Already winter blankets the land, freezing the very bones of the earth. Tis as if summer had never been. And as you mentioned before, this unnatural winter showed up in multiple books in the Marvel Universe simultaneously. Yeah, so you would see, you know, like a spectacular Spider-Man or whatever, and all of a sudden it would be this weird winter. Where did that come from, would wonder Peter Parker? And it wouldn't really be commented on, other than that winter was strange and not very pleasant this time of year. But it's a nice little bit of internal Marvel Universe consistency that I really appreciate. Well, Thor swings his hammer quickly enough to create a space vortex, teleporting them to Melody's apartment. Melody being the mortal alter ego of the sorceress Lorelai, who's currently doing her best to magically seduce Thor and is generally a troublemaker and ne'er-do-well. <laughs> Thor offers Roger the tidbit that it was the casket that kept his father alive for centuries, which is filling in a little bit of that story for us as well, and that without it, Roger will not live forever. And Roger's not too concerned about this. Tough. It didn't make my dad happy. He was unable to touch people. He'd live and they'd die. Guess that's why we didn't get along. I didn't touch much either. Maybe I ought not to leave life without getting a firmer grip on it. We'll see. Who wants to live forever? That occupies a special place in my heart. Me too. I, yeah, I, I, I love the kind of par unconscious parallels to Highlander here. But I also love that Roger is so himself here. I mean, we've seen that his father did live for apparently hundreds of years because of this Asgardian artifact that he stole. And Roger doesn't want that. He doesn't want to, you know, be this ageless uh, sort of inhuman figure that his father was. He just wants to be a guy and live in the world and get older because that's what people do and just be a person. And so the fact that he's still involved in all of this like supernatural nonsense despite having that desire – I already respect Roger Willis a lot, but there's a little bit more. I have to admit, if somebody offered me eternal life, like part of me would be like, hmm, how can I like really work this? And Roger instead is very cautious about it. And 
you know, intelligently so. I mean, I'd be with you. I mean, maybe I'd be careful with Asgardian artifacts, but uh, Hob Gadling said it best in the Sandman, death is a mugs game and there's so much more to live for. I would never get bored. Mm, so many comics to read. So many comics to read. <laughs> and then here, a moment I really enjoyed, Thor calls Melody on recognizing Sigurd Jarlson as Thor in the fairy realm. Right, because uh, Melody, the alter ego of Lorelei, had in theory only ever met Sigurd Jarlson, the suspiciously beefy but nonetheless very human alter ego of Thor. So the fact that she then recognized him when he was in his red cape and winged helmet, that's a little weird. And it's nice to see that even the enchantedly love-struck Thor isn't a total dummy and realizes that that doesn't quite add up. Oh, Thor, anybody would have known. You're too big to hide behind a pair of glasses and an Izod shirt. However, Roger Willis knows all about secret identities in the Marvel Universe, and he ain't buying it. That can't be it. Everybody was fooled by Thor's disguise. That's how secret identities work, which means she knew who he was from the start. So yes, Roger clearly knows something is up, and he's deduced that it has to do with the Golden Mead because he's an intelligent person. But before he can warn Thor, Thor needs to make a phone call to his boss, Jerry, and Melody asks to speak to Roger outside. So Melody, which is to say Lorelai, defends her actions to Roger, saying, hey, this is all for the best. I just want what's best for Thor, and then asks him to promise not to tell Thor what's up, a promise that she seals with a kiss. Yeah, and that's a pretty sweet scene. It, it does show her seductive powers. And after this kiss, Roger finds that he is literally unable to say anything about it to Thor. He can only think it. But like you said, Roger is indeed a resourceful and intelligent dude, so he tries to think of what other options he has, and in fact... He creates a distraction by breaking a vase, and he dilutes the golden mead with water and honey. I think he doesn't even dilute it so much as he pours it out and replaces it with water and honey, which makes me kind of wonder, was this just like really awful mead? <laughs> I mean, I, I've had a lot of honey run in my time, don't get me wrong, but honey and water still tastes a lot less exciting. What I wonder is how Lorelai gets away with only serving it to Thor. Like, as a host, that's really kind of a breach of etiquette. Like, oh, I have this very special drink. Nope, nope, just you have it. The rest of you... Drink some sessions or some, you know, PBR. Have some LaCroix. Yeah. <laughs> but meanwhile, Thor has been essentially quitting his job, calling Jerry like a very conscientious person and letting him know that he's going to be away for a while. Jerry Sapristi isn't too surprised. After all, it was his cousin Nick, Nick Fury, that recommended Sigurd Jarlson. So he figures probably Sigurd has some special fancy government stuff going on. And now, instead of Spider-Man, he thinks he must be Captain America. Okay, you're getting warmer, Jerry. I'm impressed, but you're not quite there yet. Meanwhile, back in Asgard, Odin is preparing to call Thor from Midgard and spots him with Melody. Because, of course, Odin has all sorts of magic-y stuff where he can spy on basically everybody, which I gotta say, if your dad can do that, like, adolescence must have been real rough. Yeah, that's a nightmare right there. <laughs> Just puts a blanket over the uh, crystal of seeing for, like, a ten-year period. Yeah, forget it. Ain't nobody want to see any of that anyway. Yeah, that's terrible. <laughs> but he recognizes Melody as Lorelai, the Enchantress's younger sister, and he realizes Thor doesn't know who she really is, but he doesn't seem concerned. A wonderful jest. So long as he has not formed an attachment with a mortal woman, I am content. And a son should have some secrets from his father. So on the one hand, this is so frustrating that Odin doesn't care that Thor is being tricked by an Asgardian as long as he's not, you know, shacking up with a mortal woman. But on the other hand, it was going to be too unbelievable if nobody ever recognized Lorelai. So they kind of took care of that aspect neatly without revealing to Thor who Lorelai really is. It's a good narrative trick, I agree. And I also like that this takes an Odin who has thus far been portrayed in this run as extremely wise and compassionate and a just leader without very many flaws at all, and reminds us, the readers, that no, he's kind of a dick. He's kind of bigoted against mortals. Well, yeah, I mean, Thor was back with Sif pre this uh, Walter Simonson arc because Odin basically forbade Thor from being with Jane Foster because she was immortal. So he's clearly shown that he has this prejudice against mortals and it's terrible. 
Now, Odin can't be prejudiced for too long, or rather he can't focus on it, because a character that we've been following in our sort of B-plot for a while is making his way back to Asgard. That's right, it is Baldur the Brave on his horse Silverhoof, with Agnar of Vanaheim pulled up behind him. Baldur's destiny is now clear after that awesome thing he did in the Tapestry of the Norns last time, and he's going back home to see what he can do to help out with the grand doom that is approaching the Nine Realms. Baldur is at his best, and he is impressing Agnar to the nth degree. There's a scene where Baldur is, you know, galloping through all the warriors and Agnar is just like, oh, everybody parts for him. Like, I was just such a fool to try to fight him. And what's more, Agnar quickly realizes when Baldur calls him by name that Baldur knew that he, Agnar, was the guy who'd been trying to kill Baldur, and he brought him up behind him on his horse. He left his back unprotected to Agnar while they rode back to Asgard the entire time anyway. Like, the innate nobility of Baldur, the innate trust he has in the goodness of people and the goodness of Agnar makes Agnar realize he was completely wrong to think this guy was a villain. And now, even after he was so impressed with uh, Baldur's battle against the Sand Devil to save an innocent armed only with a stick, he's even more impressed. At this point, Agnar is totally sold on Baldur being amazing and on wanting to help him in every way possible. Yeah, he is Team Baldur. And I have to say, this is the way to convert your enemies. You know, just... Kill them with kindness and nobility and show them your innate, you know, worthiness and they'll come around. Exactly. Uh, Your results may vary if you don't live in a mystical land of perfect symbolism. (laughs) And then Thor returns to Asgard with Malekith over his shoulder and meets with Odin and his war council. And Odin gives everyone assembled a sort of summary of what's been going on, of this grand cosmic force out there that he first discovered way back in the first story of Simonson's run. The fire demons chasing Bill's fleet, they all were part of a much grander evil, an evil that through the death of one of his ravens, through the assorted magical research he's been doing, Odin has now fully identified. And he says to the assembled council... Yet all these things are but the shadows cast by one great shadow, and that one is a shadow of flame. I myself witnessed that flame in the days of the beginning. Long have I hoped that the story ended in those days, but I see now that like many stories, perhaps it has no end. And Odin finally shares his story. Long ago, when the sky was new, he and his two brothers, Vili and Ve, traveled to Muspelheim to seek out the sons of Muspel, which were beings of living fire, and the monstrous Colossus who ruled them. And Muspelheim is one of the nine realms of Yggdrasil, the world tree. Muspelheim is the realm of fire. And the Colossus who rules them is Surtur, destined to destroy the nine realms to burn the very world tree itself during the last battle. He also coincidentally looks like a hulking figure we have seen a number of times before. But we're getting ahead of ourselves because we're following Odin and his brothers. So they're approaching the portal, which looks really cool. It looks like a mouth with jagged teeth. If you're a bad guy and your front door doesn't look really intimidating, you're probably doing it wrong. Yeah, yeah. You got to up your game, people. And it's interesting that as Odin, Vili, and Ve head into Muspelheim, the fire demons we see here, they're very different than the fire demons we've seen massing uh, out in space as the sword Twilight has been forged. Those are sort of armored, almost insectoid creatures, and these are just vaguely humanoid shapes made of flame. And I like this because it really gets across that this is the world when it was new. This is the world before it was fully formed. And so the fire demons haven't had time to kind of refine themselves and evolve into what they'll eventually be. They're just fire. That's as far as they've gotten. It's a nice little touch. And the sons of Muspel take the brothers to their lord and master, the giant shadowy being we've seen forging a sword for so many issues. Welcome, godlings. Surtur, the ruler of Muspelheim, greets the sons of Bor. And Odin has a question for Surtur. He asks if he indeed plans to destroy the Nine Realms, and Surtur tells him it's true. Surtur even shows them his sword and the Eternal Flame of Destruction, which will ignite his sword so he can destroy the Nine Realms. Now, the world may be new, but Odin already knows he likes the world. It's where he keeps his stuff. And so he and his brothers aren't going to have any of this. They challenge Surtur, the god of fire, the fire demon and the ruler of an entire realm, to prevent this from happening. 
And I love the tone of this flashback in this story. This really does read like an essential Norse myth. It's it's like a classic fairy tale. It is. Simonson captures that so well. And, you know, like we've been discussing on past episodes, like some of our commenters have discussed, Simonson just loves actual Norse mythology in a way that nobody had quite enjoyed to that point before this specific run on Thorne. So it's cool to see stuff from the Eddas, from Norse mythology itself, just translating, I'm not going to say directly, but more closely than it has before. So to cast another illusion, Odin challenges Surtur like David challenges Goliath, and he says, Then perhaps t'would be best for all who live if Surtur's sword were broken and the flame put out. And Surtur's response is actually kind of agreeable. He's He more has a sense of humor in when the world was new, and he says, <laughs> Well spoken, young Odin. A rare cheat from one who is about to die. So they fight, and at first they look outmatched, but then Odin and his two brothers merge. They combine their power to become one huge warrior. It's like Norse Voltron, and I love the way this works, because... All the different brothers have their own sort of aesthetic style. Odin's look is very much akin to what we see in Asgard in the comic. But Vili and Vey, they're different stories. Like, they look like they're almost from different cultures, which I suppose makes sense because it was Odin's influence that founded Asgard. And so this giant, like, Norse battle bot thing they turn into, it's a mixture of all of them. There are elements from Vili's helmet and Vey's mask and Odin's armor, and the color scheme is even mixed from between all of them, and they have this one gigantic sword to match Surtur's gigantic sword of destruction, and this is so gloriously epic. We've talked about it before, but Simonson is able to portray scale through his art and his narration so incredibly well. And so even though the panels are just focused on these two warriors, you can tell just how hulking, how towering they are over everything around them. Of course, you can listen to this podcast without reading the comics, but even if you're doing that, we implore you to pick up this issue because there's a panel where the brothers and Surtur slam their swords together with an incredible crack of doom that is just metal. It's amazing. And of course, they do destroy Surtur's sword, and they steal the eternal flame and run with Surtur and his demons in pursuit. Yeah, the impact has knocked them all apart, because I guess, you know, uh, the, the shocks on the giant Odin brother bot are not so hot. But yeah, they pick up the eternal flame. They, like, sort of sever it with a single sword blow from the stone stalagmite from which it grows. And it's it's kind of a, a comical but also awesome image of Odin just carrying this big cup of fire that's, like, way the hell bigger than him and his horse as his brothers assist him. It's very Jack and the Beanstalk, you know? Like, they've they've succeeded. They're cutting and running. This is so much more epic than Jack and the Beanstalk. But nonetheless, that's an apt parallel. <laughs> So Odin escapes, but then once he reaches the portal, he realizes he's alone. My brothers, why do you hesitate? Throw the entrance quickly before all is lost. And it turns out that his brothers are sacrificing themselves, so Surtur won't be able to enter the Nine Realms. And Vili says, Go, little brother. Guard well the eternal flame and rule wisely the realm of our fathers. And Vey adds, Into your hands we give the future! And they destroy the portal between Muspelheim and, I guess, presumably Asgard, or maybe the space between realms, and their power flows into Odin. They have given it up. They have given it up to him and given up their lives to prevent Surtur from destroying everything. And this is what gives birth to the Odin power. This is what gives birth to the almost omnipotent magical abilities of Odin, the Allfather. And Odin says, Enough power to level a world, to overthrow a universe but not enough to save my brothers. And Odin here is burning with power and sorrow. And this is so affecting. We were talking about this earlier that obviously with the buildup and the stakes, this is an epic story by any means. But relating the story of how he lost his brothers to this really gives this the emotional through line that helps you relate directly to Odin, who is this all-powerful god. Like, this really gives it personal stakes. And this is why mythology can work so well. This is why you can have such a human connection to these larger-than-life figures, because you have these gods with their own losses, their own joys, their own poor and wise decisions. Like, they're people. We see that in Greek mythology. We see that very much in Norse mythology. And here, we see it a great deal. 
And this, you know, losing his brothers and gaining the powers instantly affects Odin. Yeah, he's been portrayed as a much younger man. Like, he's got short blonde hair and a short blonde beard. He's not the gigantic wizardy looking dude that we've seen throughout the entire run of the Mighty Thor. And he's still drawn the same way as the Kirby crackle and glowing auras envelop him from his brothers giving him their power. But suddenly in his bearing, suddenly in his facial expression, his body language, he starts to look like the Odin we know. He starts to look more regal. He starts to look older. He starts to look wiser and sadder. And that Simonson can convey so much despite the fact that this is the same guy with the same features and the same armor and the same beard and everything. That's some expert stuff right there. Well, back in the present, Odin knows that Surtur is finally free and ready to destroy everything. So he summons another warrior. That's right, because in this fantastic panel, as energy just bursts from Odin's very intent, as the cosmos itself, as we zoom far out of Asgard and see it in space, appears to set on fire, we have the return of Beta Ray freaking Bill. Oh yeah, Beta Ray Bill! There's a giant Cthum! And it's not just Bill. We also have the Lady Sif because, of course, they'd been traveling together when last we left them. They'd been traveling with Bill's fleet of cold-sleeping Corbinites trying to get them to safety. But the stakes are so great that they have been called back that Thor's most powerful ally and one of Asgard's most fearsome warriors now have to be here because things are getting super real. And this is the first of many heroes moments in this arc. It's like a greatest hits of Asgard and beyond as, you know, so-and-so shows up and so-and-so shows up and it it's just affecting. I personally hadn't, of course, forgotten Beta Ray Bill, but he wasn't at the forefront of my mind. So seeing him there was like, first it was a pleasant surprise, but then it was like, stuff is getting real. And so there are all these happy reunions. So Thor and Bill are so pleased to see each other. Thor and Sif are so pleased to see each other. Although it's, I'm not going to say awkward, but I do like the emotion conveyed in their reunion. Yeah, when Thor and Sif see each other, you know, Sif is telling Thor how happy she is and how her life has been moving on. But at the same time, you see that her head is turned away from Thor and her eyes are closed. It's like, it might be a little hard for Sif to see Thor after so much time and their complicated romantic history. Exactly. But I think my favorite part of the reunion is Beta Ray Bill getting to meet some characters he hasn't before. Because, of course, Baldur and the Warriors 3 were doing their own thing last time Bill was in town, by which I mean Asgard. And so, uh, you know, he has an honorable meeting with Baldur and they respectfully shake hands. And then Volstagg's like, Didst thou really lift Thor's hammer? I mean, it's a, it's a valid question. That's a pretty impressive thing. And Fulstag has never been one to uh, slow down conversation for the sake of etiquette. <laughs> yeah, he wants the gossip. Volstag, I could hang with him. But then Odin interrupts this happy revelry with... My children, though we might happily spend days regaling each other with tales of the past, tis the future that most concerns us now. And so everyone gathers in not too very long at the Battle Plain of Vigrid, where literally Thousands of Asgardian warriors and their allies are arrayed in silence, waiting. And Odin arrives in a flare of golden light, Gandalf at Helm's deep style. It is really impressive. I mean, I'm not saying Odin's an unnecessarily flashy guy, but sometimes when your people are about to go up against the greatest foe they have ever faced in the millennia that they have been deities, sometimes you got to inspire them a little bit. Give yeah. them the old, you know, Asgardian razzle-dazzle. Odin definitely brought it here. And, and just the whole panel with this golden field of endless warriors. It's a gigantic, like, Midwestern wheat field of fury. <laughs> Elizabeth, I think that is one of my favorite things you have ever said. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. I'm not sure where that came from, but now I kind of want to make some bread. <laughs> <laughs> some epic bread. But it's not just the Asgardians. It's not just their allies. It's not just Beta Ray Bill and Sif return from the cosmos. Because with stakes this high... You need even more allies. You need even people who have opposed you in the past. And then we see Amora, the Enchantress, Scourge, the Executioner, and Tyr, God of War, all frequent antagonists. But the stakes, again, are high. And at the end of the day, they are Asgardians, and they are going to protect Asgard. Exactly. So Odin lays it all out. Here's the deal, my friends. Surtur, out in space, has forged his sword Twilight. Malekith the Accursed, the Dark Elf, froze the portal between Muspelheim and Midgard so that Surtur could then shatter it with his blade. And now Surtur is gathering his fire demon armies in the Sahara Desert of Midgard to make his way from there toward the Rainbow Bridge 
toward Asgard and toward the Eternal Flame. And if he is able to light his sword Twilight within the Eternal Flame, it is all over. Literally, he will burn down the world. Not metaphorically, but like actually burn down the world and end everything. So Odin's plan is that Thor and Beta Ray Bill will lead the vast armies on Midgard, while Odin and Heimdall will be the only warriors remaining on Asgard in case Surtur makes it there. And so Bill tries to tell Sif to stay in Asgard to protect Odin, which of course she does not want to do, and Thor speaks up on her behalf, saying, Ah, friend Bill, now you speak with your heart and not your head. Think you that the Lady Sif, a warrior woman without peer in all the realm, would be content to stand idly by and leave the fighting to such fools as we? Thor has known me since I wore pigtails, when he sought to keep me from following him into battle against the Frost Giants. He failed. I love this dynamic. I love how much of an awesome bro Thor is to Sif. How every time anybody tries to protect her or keep her safe or hold her back, he's like, no, I know Sif. She's a warrior and she's going to do what she wants to do. And stopping her is both pointless and probably kind of dumb. They are the best kind of exes where they have this probably centuries of history to each other and they love and support each other, even though they're not romantically involved. So with much pageantry, the thousands of soldiers ride across the Rainbow Bridge across Bifrost, covering its entire surface for literally miles as planets and stars hang epically all around, as we have this wonderful shot that actually seems to directly parallel when Thor, Bill, and Sif went off to fight the fire demons back in the first arc, but now it's not just three warriors and a couple of goats, it's Everybody. It is the vast armies of the heavens themselves, of the shining city itself. It's the Aesir's finest decked out in the greatest arms and armament that could be made by them, or probably also the dwarves. And it's so impressive. It kind of gave me chills when I saw just this one panel. Absolutely. And I love the way Thor and Bill kind of frame the page. They're like mirror images of each other, just leading the battle. Right. It's impressive to be led by Thor, but to be led by Thor and like this other guy who is worthy to possess the power of Thor, who has his own hammer and his own sweet red cape, that's doubly cool. At this point, we know how powerful Surtur as his armies are. That's been built up over the course of the entire first year of this run. But it's hard not to think, okay, these guys, everybody on the Rainbow Bridge, They've got this. And Odin watches, thinking sadly about how Loki did not arrive to join his fellows. And Frigga, the wife of Odin and the queen of Asgard, arrives to take the Asgardian children to safety, but not all of them are having it. For instance, one little girl named Gunnhild says, We aren't going. You're just sending us away from the fight. Maybe the grown-ups don't know that this is where it's going to happen, but you can't fool us. We want to stay and help, so we're not leaving and you can't make us. And you mentioned that Gunnhild's actual pigtails are a nice callback to the incredibly stubborn, fierce warrior Sif talking about her own past. Yeah, Gunnhild is adorable. She is, and this is also a character who will be known as Hildi later on. She's one of the daughters of Volstagg, and she is one of my favorite characters in the entire Mighty Thor mythos. Like, I'm... I'm always a giant fan of badass little girls like, you know, Katie Power and the Power Pack is a personal favorite of mine, for instance. And Hildy Gunhild is right up there in the highest ranks of badass little Marvel Universe girls. Plus, I like to think as Volstagg's daughter, she has a really good developed palate. You know, she's an immense appreciation for food and more adventurous eater than the typical little girl Asgardian. A more adventurous everything in this <laughs> yeah. case. She's so great. And so Odin thinks about, OK, how am I going to fix this? And he has a good idea. He convinces her that she and the kids actually have to protect Frigga so he can focus on the battle. Goodhill's a little suspicious, but she accepts this, and so her new goal is the guardian of the All-Mother of Frigga, Queen of Asgard. And Frigga is amused, but also concerned. Because she realizes this may be it. This may be the last time she sees Odin. Hell, this may be the last time that Asgard even exists. The stakes of this battle are so high, and certainly we, the readers, have had that uh, adequately portrayed a number of times that she doesn't know what's going to happen after this. Odin does his best to calm her fears, or at least to help her come to terms with them the way he's trying to do. Hush, beloved. Have we not had an eternity together? When better now to part than in the dawn? So after this bit of business is taken care of, Odin sends Balder to convince Carnilla of the Norns to send her own armies. Now, the last time Balder was sent out was to meet up with Loki to convince him to join up, which he did not do. He didn't show up with all of the other semi-villains like the Enchantress. So Balder's a little skeptical, 
But Odin points out, well, we haven't really seen how that story is going to play out. And, you know, wasn't it a little bit satisfying to decapitate Loki anyway? Which I can only imagine just makes Balder, you know, stick out his tongue at Odin. You jerk. <laughs> but Balder essentially says, okay, I'll kick the ball again, Lucy. And Balder goes off. I mean, he's way cooler about it. This is new and improved. I have come to terms with my fate and I'm willing to take up arms to defend what is right. But even so, you know, that takes a lot to go on another similar mission to the one that nearly ruined you, even if it did ultimately result in you getting your life back on track for the first time in ages. At least the danger from Carnilla is that, you know, she wants to be his girlfriend rather than she wants to, like, make him suffer and kill him and send him to hell. Right, and we'll come back to Baldur and Carnilla a little bit later, but for now, we're going to go to someplace entirely different, that being Midgard, specifically Manhattan. Amid the blizzard comes a wave of armored terror from the skies, with maces and flamethrowers and claws and blades, and the demons begin killing. Wreck and ruin, destruction to the world, let no one survive! This scene is instant chaos. I mean, they're in the middle of a freak snowstorm. You see fleeing, you know, civilians still wearing shorts because, you know, a minute ago it was spring or summer. And it it, it just brings it home that these demons are here to kill. They've got business. Yeah, it's not just like they're harassing people and scaring them. Like, no, you see bodies on the ground. You see out of nowhere these random people going about their day-to-day business being mowed down by these horrifying monstrosities that these people have probably never seen the like of. I mean, I know it's New York and the Marvel Universe, and they've seen some weird stuff, but they probably haven't seen a tidal wave of fire demons coming from the sky itself with no warning at all. I mean, most villains in the Marvel, you know, universe worth their salt are at least going to have like a threatening speech or, you know, lay out their evil plan before they start killing, but not these demons. No, but thankfully, suddenly there's a Brackawoom! And it's Thor and the Avengers. And it's so interesting to see the Avengers in this comic. You know, it, it it's unexpected and almost a little strange. It reminds me of when crossovers were actually the rarity in Marvel, and it was kind of unsettling. Yeah. Now, if you'd been reading the Avengers at the time, you would have known that in Avengers number 249, which takes place between the last issue and this one, Thor did, in fact, rally his allies, rally the team that he's been a part of for ages. And actually, there's a single-page montage, as Thor describes the current setup that's going on, in the Mighty Thor comic itself with Searcher and everything. I think Thor is way more concise than we are, Elizabeth. Well, you know, he was probably getting an outline from Marvel. It, make, it makes it easier. That's possible. Or, alternately, we know that Mjolnir can help him travel through time. Maybe he just joined one of our outlines from Google Drive and he was just following that. He used a space vortex. Oh, man. <laughs> He's divinely stealing our intellectual property, that jerk. Damn it. I mean, I guess it's based on intellectual property that's about him, so it's legally murky. Who knows? Gray area. Gray area. <laughs> but yeah, so the that issue of Avengers, it's fun, uh, but I gotta say Avengers at the time, while good, was no Walter Simonson's Thor. Uh, mainly for me, it was worth it to see the Avenger Star Fox using his powers to try to sort of uh, excite the pleasure centers of the fire demons to convince them to not fight and utterly failing. Just saying that makes my it makes my skin crawl. Star Fox is kind of an inherently creepy character. I mean, he wasn't portrayed as being that awful, not as much as he could have been, but just those powers are kind of bleh, they're gross. You know, in a weird way, I feel like and this kind of exposes my own prejudices. If Star Fox was a female character, I don't think I would be as off put by that. Like, we're kind of geared to see women in that role and it's more threatening when it's a male, but I don't know. That's a side tangent. Sorry. No, that makes sense to me, though. <laughs> but yes, uh, the Avengers are here and Thor is here and Thor is not holding back. We mentioned that it was clear that the fire demons were actually killing people and it is clear that Thor is actually killing demons. And not just a couple, but he is standing by the end of this scene on a literal mountain, like probably an eight-story building worth of demon corpses as he suddenly faces... Surtur himself for the first time. And Surtur calls out, Son of Odin, hear me! Now at last has come the hour of reckoning! And Surtur says he's going to kill Thor last so that he has to watch his companions die. But just as dozens of demons are about to kill the Scarlet Witch, Clathash! It's Beta Ray Bill and the armies of Asgard. They finally made it here across Bifrost itself to join the fray. This has gone from a battle to a war. And we get glimpses of the various combatants. But our favorite part is probably the Warriors 3. On guard, you demons. 
Turn and fight for your lives. Hogan the Grim commands it. Come on, Volstag. Hogan, Sif, and I shall have destroyed all our foes ere you cross the frozen river. Far! No horse is equal to the task of carrying my heroic girth, Fondrel. Let lesser men seek to rise above their fellows on the backs of such poor animals. Volstag shall leap into the crush of battle and destroy his foes with a single bound. And I love the Warriors 3, and we've actually seen very little of them in combat together in this run so far, so it's really fun to see them doing this sort of combatant routine that they've probably been repeating for hundreds, if not thousands of years, and I feel like it never gets old for them. I feel like Fandral the Dashing especially is just having a grand time every time he and his buds get to, you know, kick the ass of some evildoers. Obviously, this is a serious situation, and the stakes are as high as they could get. But at the same time, you wonder, when's the last time these three guys had a really good battle where they could just cut loose without any thought? Exactly. Now, it's not just these allies of Asgard fighting with the assorted soldiers, because the Enchantress, Scourge the Executioner, and Tyr are all here as well. The Enchantress realizes, okay, we have a lot of allies, but we're going to need some more help. What about my sister? What about Lorelei? And she teleports into Lorelai's apartment to recruit her, but Lorelai, of course, nopes out. Don't be silly, Amora. Do you think that I do not know what you are about? Long have you sought to win the handsome Thor. And now that I have made him mine forever with the enchanted mead, you seek to have me slain and take for yourself what you could never win. Go and leave me to my victory. Thor is mine. How simple you are, Lorelai, to balance a mere infatuation against the destruction of all that is. She promises this will not go well for her sister. And in fact, spoiler, yup. But it is nice to see a sorceress that we can respect. I mean, Amora the Enchantress may be, for the most part, a villain. She may have mostly been an antagonist in the history of Thor and the Avengers and stuff like that. But she's no dummy. She's smart enough to realize the stakes here are higher than any mere personal vendetta. And so, nicely done, Amora the Enchantress. I respect the way you're handling this. And Lorelai, well... You're certainly being consistent. Yeah. Again, Lorelai has a chance to have some sort of redeeming value, and she's so incredibly short-sighted and petty and childish that it, it just makes her look really bad. I mean, the Enchantress, with all of her evil schemes in the past, at least she had a plan. At least she had kind of grand dreams for what she wanted to accomplish. Like, Lorelai is just, like, hanging out, watching TV, like, doing nothing. that Netflix ain't gonna binge itself or, you know, whatever the 1985 equivalent would have been. (laughs) VHS. Yes, she has a bunch of well-worn VHS tapes. Back out in the streets, everyone is kicking all kinds of ass, including Thor, Sif, and Beta Ray Bill. But fire is engulfing the city. I mean, it is fire demons that are attacking Manhattan. And so Thor summons a giant thunderstorm to put out the blaze to save what he can of Manhattan. Leaving a clear sky and a rainbow. Thor sees Surtur walking through the city, Godzilla-style, the skyscrapers coming up only to his waist. And so he flies toward him as quickly as he can and crashes hammer first into Surtur's face. And Surtur dissolves. This was only an image made of flame. The real Surtur was just waiting for that rainbow, waiting for the rainbow bridge. Because Bifrost isn't a, a physical bridge with, you know, guardrails and struts and buttresses. Bifrost is the rainbow itself. That's what connects Midgard and Asgard. And now that a rainbow is here, Searcher has an easy hop, skip, and jump to the realm of the Aesir, where resides the eternal flame, his ultimate goal. And if he reaches it, the destruction of all that is. Yeah, he clearly manipulated Thor into creating a rainbow. And in fact, it turns out he left for Asgard like half an hour ago. What's that line? I did it 35 minutes ago. And in fact, the Gjallarhorn, the giant really cool looking horn that Heimdall, the guardian of the Rainbow Bridge, keeps with him, sounds. And it's this horrifying, incredibly loud noise. And you mentioned you really like the way that this was rendered on page. Yeah, you know, with most of the sound effects in Thor, the fonts are very blocky and and square and, and well rendered. This is just a vibrating, raw font. It looks like it's vibrating right off the page, and it just shows how out of control everything is. Yeah, it's almost an ugly sound effect for a very ugly event. Surtur is almost in Asgard. 
So Thor and Beta Ray Bill are in the thick of battle when Thor realizes he needs to leave to help Odin battle Surtur, leaving Bill in command. And Bill calls after Thor, but Sif is there with him. Never fear, Bill. Nothing shall separate us. But it's not just the awesome twosome of Beta Ray Bill and Sif battling because we also have the Avengers still, and the Fantastic Four have showed up. We are gathering so many of the heroes of Earth, which makes sense. When you have a battle this big, of course all of the superheroes are going to come out of the woodwork to help, you know, the Earth not be burned down. And it turns out that the Sons of Muspel have been building a doom tube on top of the Empire State Building, basically using a warp engine to create a portal to funnel an unlimited number of evil warriors into the battle. And I love that reference, because like in Jack Kirby's Fourth World, you know, with Orion and Darkseid and everybody, there's the, the boom tube that's a big teleportation device. And so this is the doom tube, the Thor equivalent, which I totally buy because Simonson is clearly heavily influenced by Jack Kirby. And how can you not love the works of Jack Kirby? It's some of the best comics out there ever. I did not recognize the reference, but I just loved after a year of doom, doom, they finally created a doom tube. Like they're getting more efficient with their doom. It kind of reminds me of, uh, you know, the 60s Batman with his bat this and bat that. Do you think they have doom everything? Like, I don't know, doom toothpaste and doom suspenders and doom club for their doom car so it doesn't get doom broken into. Like in the new Battlestar Galactica where everything was an octagon, you know, they have branding, you know, doom is their brand. It's important to stay consistent. As as a podcaster, I understand this. You know, this is why our intro and our outro kind of sound the same every episode. It's the same thing, but more doomy. What's interesting to me about this collection of people is I did not grow up reading Thor or the Avengers or the Fantastic Four, so I'm naturally wondering, hey, where are the X-Men? So I looked this up, and this month, the month that this specific issue came out, uh, Rachel Summers and Magma were actually in Manhattan. They were infiltrating the Hellfire Club to go assassinate Selene. Um, So I know probably they didn't take place simultaneously, but I guess maybe they were just really, really distracted because of how much they hated Selene and didn't notice the giant war happening in the sky next to them. Well, they are trying trapped in the Hellfire Club. The Hellfire Club has got to have state-of-the-art climate control, so they're inside. They don't know there's a snowstorm. They're probably in a basement somewhere. And, you know, Magma's kind of used to fire and heat anyway. That's her whole power, so maybe the fire demons didn't really register. You get a no prize. <laughs> Perfect. <laughs> Still, I, I miss my X-Men. I love my X-Men. <laughs> that's okay. They'll totally cross over with Thor later, or at least X-Factor will. But that's a topic for a future episode, because we're still in the middle of war. And Bill realizes that they do need to destroy the warp engine, but he's worried about fighting through the sheer number of foes. And man, the way this is illustrated, they're like wading through a sea of demons. The number of demons is just unfathomable. They're not arrayed in neat grid-like ranks. They're just this, this cluster, this roiling mass of claws and teeth and fire and hatred and ugh, it's so intimidating. And one demon in particular is preparing to kill Bill, who he refers to as this mockery of Thor, when he's suddenly shot by... Roger Willis. That's right, Roger Willis, the grim and middle-aged son of Eric Willis, the guardian of the casket of ancient winters, the Korean War veteran. He's got some more steel-jacketed bullets after last time, and he's going to help out because this is Earth, this is his home, and Thor's his ally. And even if this weird horse-faced guy isn't exactly Thor, well, if he's Thor's bud, that's good enough for him. Yes, after their mistaken identity meet cute, they introduce themselves and, and catch up, and Roger may have a solution to the weather. He's been studying the papers left to him by his father about the Casket of Ancient Winters, and he thinks he has a solution, but he needs to get back to England as soon as possible. So the Human Torch hasn't been having much luck fighting these demons because his powers are fire, and to them that's just sort of like, I don't know, a nice back rub or something. And so Mr. Fantastic suggests that the Human Torch go get the Rip Roar One, one of their super-fast, super-science-fiction-y vehicles, and take Roger to England to make this happen. And at first you wonder, hey, they don't really need the torch to fly this Rip Roar One, but it does become relevant later, which is cool. Yeah, this whole thing with Roger and Johnny Storm, we're going to be getting to that next episode, and it's going to be pretty sweet. So the forces of Asgard are being forced back to the tip of Manhattan when a helicopter comes in, guns blazing. The Screaming Eagles are here, the 82nd Airborne Division, who apparently were like real people. And we meet Major Salida, who reports to Vision, the current leader of the Avengers. Apparently there are doom tubes haha, all over the world. So this is no good. I mean, before Surtur's armies were massing in the Sahara and attacking various places from there, but now they could 
take over the world. Not only that, they could destroy the world. Because, obviously, Searcher's goal is to get to the Eternal Flame in Asgard, but destruction is kind of his jam, and so if he can incinerate Midgard while he's at it and slaughter everybody on it, that's going to be just fine with him. And then Salida sees Bill and says, Holy smokes, who's that? As far as you're concerned, Colonel, I am Thor, and the battle is mine to command. So, Beta Ray Bill's plan, he wants his men to charge the Doom Tube and then retreat, confusing all of the fire demons. But these aren't just, you know, random soldiers. These are the Einherjar. These are the valorous fallen mortals who have been worthy enough to ascend to near godhood and join Odin's personal army in the halls of Valhalla, and retreating is not really their style. And Hurrikan, the captain in particular, is enraged. What? No warrior of Valhalla would think to turn his face from the enemy and run like a coward. But he's overruled by Aelif, our last Viking of our previous episode, who died and ascended to Valhalla. Right, because that's the thing. When you die in an awesome way in a Thor book, you're not gone. It's just now you're potentially one of the Unharrier. Now you're one of the valiant dead. And seeing him here now, seeing him in his full youthful glory, looking strong and doughty. I love that word you know, in in his uh, brown and orange armor, and standing up to his boss, basically, when he's been one of the Anhariar for less than a week, this is Aleph Dragonslayer. Seeing this right here, like, I almost got a little teary, because we came to love Aleph the Lost so much, and so seeing him having gotten his just heavenly reward and being exactly what he always wanted to be, allying with our heroes in this grand conflict, it's too awesome for words, even though we just said a bunch of words about it. And he has a crucial moment here where he reminds Harakin that Bill was appointed their chieftain by Odin and they will obey him. I love this guy. So the other warriors agree and Harakin concedes. Chin up, Harakin. If my plan works, even you may have had your fill of fighting before this day is through. Here's what we have to do. Tyr, you and the executioner must mumble, mumble, mumble. Because we, the readers, don't get to see the full plan. And I don't know, there's something about this incredibly uh, badass, occasionally grim, horse-faced alien Thor guy saying mumble, mumble, mumble. I know it's not literal, but it's still kind of hilarious. It reminds me of Monty Python. He's got a bit of a Pythonic feel, it's true. (laughs) So Thor, meanwhile, is following the Rainbow Bridge to Asgard because he knows that if Surtur has crossed Bifrost, if he has even reached Bifrost, the only people standing between Surtur and the Eternal Flame are Heimdall and Odin, and he knows that there is no way that two gods, even two gods so mighty, even one of whom is the Allfather, are going to be able to stand up to Surtur alone. But Heimdall tries, and Surtur says, Step aside, little godling. My business is with your lord, Odin. Step forth, thief. I have come at last to deal with you as I dealt with your brothers. And Heimdall charges and strikes, but Surtur clouts him with his sword, shattering his armor and sending him flying. Thor arrives, and Surtur, one, is not impressed, but also he realizes something very important. So the whelp of Odin has abandoned Midgard, and Asgard is empty of guardians. Save you and your father. And with a shrack of doom he brings his sword down upon Bifrost, shattering it. And let's think about this for a minute. This isn't just I knocked over a bridge. He has shattered the very concept of rainbows. He has shattered the method of travel between two worlds that has existed since time immemorial. A fundamental part of existence. A fundamental part of not only the mystic tapestry that is the world tree, but something that's just a force of nature that we human beings see, you know, every time it rains a certain way. That's gone. There is no longer a way between the realm of the gods and the realm of mortals. Thor and Odin and Heimdall and the Eternal Flame, they're stranded. They're on their own with the god of fire, the leader of Muspelheim, a force of pure rage and destruction facing them. Next, we come to one of my very favorite panels. You see a snow-topped New York City with the Statue of Liberty in the foreground and what looks like confetti or ticker tape wafting through the air. But no, these are the brightly colored shards of the Rainbow Bridge falling to Earth. And this is where it really hit me. I mean, it's a pretty impressive action scene when Searcher does what he does and shatters the bridge. But realizing that the shards are falling to Earth, that really hammers home just how irrevocable this damage is, how something has been shifted in the the cosmos 
that will not be easily, if ever, remedied. Below, the Lady Sif says, Don't you see? It's from the bridge! The Rainbow Bridge has been broken! Something terrible is happening in Asgard. Thor and Odin may even now be dying, and I'm not there! But by the goddess-born powers of space and time I possess, I shall be! Beta Ray Bill tries to stop her from teleporting away. You shall not go! And he reminds her of the pledge that nothing would separate them, and reminds her that they need her skill and knowledge here on Midgard. And Sif's horror and Bill's grabbing of her wrist as he tries to prevent her from going, this works. I mean, we see in that panel, in that close-up of their hands, Sif's blade is in her hand. It's not that Bill is trying to, like, protect his girlfriend or protect a woman. It's that he's preventing a warrior from making a strategically poor decision and from leaving him in the lurch. Yeah, one of the things I like most about their relationship is it seems to be a relationship of equals and they have certain rules and pledges to each other that they have agreed to mutually. Yeah, they are peers, they are siblings of war, they are companions in battle, and that totally comes through. So in despair and rage, Sif leaps on her horse and flies into the sky. And this scene right here is one of my very favorites in all of Simonson's run. Hurricane! Warriors of Valhalla, heed my call! The demon's infernal machinery above the city beckons. Shall we live forever? Rise up, you great hearts! Draw your weapons! And follow me into hell! Oh, we have talked before about how incredible the Lady Sif is, but I don't think she is as impressive anywhere as she is right here with all of her passion and all of her fury and all of her loyalty to her realm and her lord and the very world itself it's just all channeled into this this inspiration if i was one of the anhariar i would be willing to lay down my life immediately for this incredible warrior yeah this is her moment and it is awesome but all of the drama in the nine realms is not happening just in manhattan and on the rainbow bridge because in Nornheim, the realm of Carnilla the Norn Queen, Baldur is making his case. He's trying to convince Carnilla that she and her mighty armies need to join this battle as well to save the worlds themselves. Though I owe Odin nothing, I believe he chose his messenger wisely. For I do desire something that belongs to Asgard. And what I desire is you. If you will swear eternal allegiance to the Norn Queen here and now, I shall send Lord Odin all the forces at my command. Refuse, and nothing shall save Asgard from bleakest defeat. <laughs> oh, Carnilla, will you never tire of such games? The very universe teeters on the brink of disaster, and yet you pretend that once again tis time to try to collar Baldur as though he were a lapdog. Fie! I am no games player that I should match my life against the lives of billions. Nor are you... Be thou the woman that you are, not the spoiled child that you pretend. The woman I know you to be. The Balder before you is no longer the god you once knew. And he gathers her into a kiss. But you shall know me, madam. Indeed you shall. And well played, Balder. This was a very sexy moment, but also very smart. He defied Carnilla, he flattered her, and he implied that, you know, she'd be getting a little Balder in the future if she lives through the crisis. And I also like the contrast between this scene where Balder realizes, you know, my future fate, my individual desires, they don't matter compared to, you know, maintaining all of existence when Lorelai did the exact opposite, when Amor the Enchantress asked something comparatively minor of her. Yeah, I mean, pretty much anybody is better than Lorelai, but Baldur is so much better, it really shines a light on how pathetic poor Lorelai is. Well, to be fair, Baldur's also kind of the best. He's like the best dude. So, you know, but before we move on, we would be remiss if we didn't bring up Carnilla's even better than ever headpiece. This thing is amazing. It is incredible. And we will go into much detail about this in, uh, later on in the episode. A uh, little bit of a spoiler there, but uh, <laughs> yup, that. So back to the battle, Heimdall falls from the bridge and Thor saves him and then turns to Surtur. Vainglorious demon? Though your power is beyond comprehension, yet shall the might of Thor give you pause. And the hammer of Thor, give me voice! And they fight 
With Surtur taunting Thor about killing his uncles. And this battle is amazing. I mean, Thor's way smaller than Surtur. He's no Odin bot from before, but just the sheer energies being thrown around, the sheer impact, it's incredible. You can almost feel it as you read the issue. And he charges up his hammer with a might of a thousand suns and hurls it straight at Surtur. So Thor charges his hammer with a might of a thousand suns and hurls it at Surtur, who flicks it away with his sword, knocking Thor out with his own hammer. Right, the way Surtur does this almost effortlessly. I mean, we know how powerful Thor is, and we've seen him for a couple panels charging his hammer up Kamehameha style, and it's still not enough to Surtur, it's almost nothing, and it flattens Thor... At which point, Surtur pins Thor down and just brings his entire, like, building-sized fist down upon him. I mean, I know Thor's durable, but... Gah! I want to quote the movie Friday here, but we are not an explicit show. But let's just say he got knocked the F out. That he did. So Surtur charges toward Asgard, now unopposed by the mighty Thor, unopposed by Heimdall. Two of the Guardians of Asgard have been taken out. But the gates explode, and there stands Odin! Back, creature of evil! Valiantly hath my son fought the good fight. Long shall it be remembered in song and story. And though I could have aided him, I bided my time that you might expend such energy as you would to defeat him, and thereby weaken thyself. Now, for my son Thor, for my brothers Vili and Vey. I stand between you and the eternal flame of Asgard, and thou shalt pay for every drop of blood shed in thy hideous cause. Whoa. We've seen Odin be a badass. We've seen him be a badass as a young man and flashback and do all sorts of spells and stuff. But seeing him and him alone face the greatest threat this run, maybe even this entire comic, maybe even the Marvel Universe, well, that might be a little much with Galactus and stuff, but still has ever seen... This is new, and this is incredible. I can imagine if I were back in the 80s reading these in real time, this is an excruciatingly painful, you know, cliffhanger. Like, I would be marking on my calendar when the next issue is going to come. And you, gentle listeners, should mark on your calendar when the next episode is going to come, because that is where we're going to leave you this week. Next week, we'll come back with the second and concluding half of The War with Surtur. And, spoiler... It's even cooler. But before we leave you, we will bestow our Recognitions of Merit, which Miles will start with the Crack-A-Doom Award. Okay, so I thought I had one. I thought that the Scothroom from number 349, as Surtur's sword smashed the very ground under the brothers Odin, Vili, and Vey, would have taken the prize. But we, in fact, get the very sound effect for which this entire category is named as the Odin bot and Surtur smash their swords together, shattering half the realm with the impact as we get an honest-to-goodness crack-a-doom! And as you pointed out, this is the first crack-a-doom in the Thor run, right? I think it may be, unless we missed something before, but even if it's not the first, it is certainly one of the best. The sheer impact of these mighty, like, even beyond gods clashing, it's right there, and that sound effect conveys it so, so perfectly. But sound effects are not the only thing in the mighty Thor, because Elizabeth, I believe you're going to tell us who won the Hell's Haberdashery Award. Now, if you're a regular listener, you can pretty much predict what we're going to say, because we have to give it to Carnilla again. She's got these gigantic horns that look to be at least three or four feet tall, and they are so impressive. And she has some sort of things hanging from it, and and what Miles described as pontoons. I mean, she looks like Cher on her, like, umpteenth farewell tour, and, and just amazing. But because we've given it to Carnilla so many times, we must announce that we will have to excuse her from consideration from here on after because she will win all of the Hell's Haberdashery wherever she appears. Right. I mean, she's kind of an outlier. Like, even the woman for whom Hell's Haberdashery is named, Hella, would have a lot of trouble competing with Carnilla's incredible headgear. It's kind of unfair. I mean, but really, what is Carnilla doing day to day? She doesn't have a lot, you know, She on her to-do list, it's like, get Balder to be my boyfriend and design another super awesome hat. So she's got the time. That's right. And, you know, she's great at the second. Seems like maybe she's getting better at the first. Well done, Carnilla the Norn Queen. Our next award is Whatsoever Holds This Hammer by Miles. 
So the worthiest non-character object in this arc, I mean, there were a lot of options here, but I think I'm going to have to go with the Eternal Flame itself. Not only is the flame itself just impossibly gigantic, just trailing up way higher in the sky than any real flame could possibly do, but it's in this amazing huge stone goblet that we get the glorious sight of Odin on his horse carrying away from Surtur, even though it's way larger than it should be. But I think the reason I have to give the award to the Eternal Flame is because we see that it ends up in Asgard itself. We get an image of that as Odin tells his story about Surtur. It's become part of the city. It's become part of the architecture. Because even though this is one of the most dangerous items in all of existence, even though it persisting means that the risk of Surtur destroying everything will always be there, it itself is too powerful to be eliminated. The best you can do is to keep it safe from Surtur. The best you can do is to just integrate it into your city and protect it as best you can with your entire civilization. This thing is too awesome to ever be destroyed or disappeared as a fundamental part of all of existence, and so it gets a little metal that it can pin on its stone goblet. The way you describe it, it makes me wonder, are the eternal flame and the Phoenix Force, you know, like cousins or something? They're both cosmic. They're both flaming. They're both dangerous. Oh, man. I haven't read the finale of the Shara and Kithri Phoenix and Thor arc going on right now, so I don't know if the eternal flame factors in. And it probably doesn't because nobody talks about it these days, but it would be pretty awesome. Mm-hmm. And with that, Elizabeth, I will turn it over to you for our most metal moment. So at first, I thought this would be the same moment that was the Krakadoom Award when Odin merged with his brothers and Surtur swing their swords at each other. But I had to give it to issue 351 when Surtur destroyed Bifrost. Like, this is such an epic, angry, impossible moment. It's it's not power metal. It's like death metal. I mean, you would think this would literally be impossible. Right. Just the horror and the magnitude of this event that are conveyed by the art and the writing, like it's breathtaking. Like you almost have to stop for a moment and just stare with your mouth hanging open, realizing what just happened, realizing what Surtur's rage has wrought. And that's what we have for you for today. Remember to join us next week for the conclusion to this epic story arc. Because next time in Thor number 352 through 354, a war is ended at great cost. The battle for Midgard, the last stand of Odin and his sons, the villainy of Hela. This has been and shall ever be the, the lightning, lightning and, and the, the storm. storm. The Lightning and the Storm is produced by Kyle Yount, host of the Godzilla podcast, KaijuCast. In Portland, Oregon, of Midgard, Realm of Mortals. Check us out at thelightningandthestorm.com. And if you'd like to help support our ad-free show and get some cool stuff, click the donate link while you're there. Check us out on Twitter, Facebook, and Tumblr. And rate and review us on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so more people can find us. We'll be back next week. Until then... Fight on, brave warriors, for valor, for glory, for Asgard! Who then flicks it away with his Thord. Thord. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay, okay. See, that's why that's why Thor, Thor wields a hammer, because otherwise he'd wield yeah, a Thord. Thord, yeah, forget it. <laughs>